and welcome to FUDS on Film. I am Drew, a FUD, over there, another FUD, Scott. Hello. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about one of our favourite filmmakers, the director, writer and producer Wes Anderson, darling of the Criterion Collection, whose distinctive style has led to him being considered something of a Marmite director, i.e. people tend to love him or hate him with seemingly little middle ground. Anderson, born in Houston, Texas in 1969, has nine feature films to his name, all of which we'll be talking about in this episode, and with his aforementioned distinctive style, both in narrative and visual terms, along with his frequent collaboration with the same cast and crew, and the fact that he has written, or co-written, all of his features, and produced all but one of them, is widely considered to be a modern-day example of auteur theory. Certainly his films have a characteristic style, and if you took any given scene from one of his films, you could have a reasonable degree of confidence that, on showing it to someone familiar with at least some of his work, it would readily be identified as, at the very least, Anderson-esque. He is noted for his symmetrical composition, restricted colour palettes, and his themes of familial conflict, grief, friendship and parenthood, especially fatherhood. Now, Anderson may well want to quote Tom Cruise's Lieutenant Caffey and a few good men and say, oh, spare me the psychobabble father but that's a difficult one to deny. And as well as that, he's known for his quirky and eccentric characters and dialogue and a lot of humour. His work has also been described by many, including me, as whimsical, another potentially polarising trait in entertainment media and one that can succeed when it is done by someone to whom it comes naturally Anderson, for instance, or fail utterly when it is forced. For example, the painfully unenjoyable try-hard PlayStation 3 video game Puppeteer, a perfect example of how not to do whimsy. <laughs> now, we'll talk a bit more about this later, I think, Scott, so unless we're going through, but as we tend to do in these sorts of episodes, we just talk a little about where we began with the director, perhaps, because the first thing I'd like to do is to thank you, you're welcome. Just in general, you know. Yeah. Thank you for being you and all that. But I do my best. More specifically and pertinently in this case, while I'm sure I would have come across Anderson's films anyway, it's actually you that introduced me to Wes Anderson. Not in person, unfortunately. No, no, that, that would have been quite pleasant. I would have had a nice conversation with him. But no, with your foisting upon me, foisting, I say, upon <laughs> me of a Rushmore DVD, yeah. A frightening number of years ago now. Let's just not count them because I'll cry. <laughs> and from the off, I was pretty much in love with his filmmaking style. Yeah, Rushmore was, I think, the first thing. I, I I don't really recall where I'd first heard of Wes Anderson, but it must have filtered into my conscience somehow. And uh, yeah, Rushmore's a very enjoyable entry. I hadn't seen Bottle Rockets, the only Wes Anderson film that I hadn't seen up until this uh, podcast. Likewise. Uh, no, actually, no. I think I had somehow glossed over Moonrise Kingdom because I pulled the Blu-ray off of my shelf and the cellophane was still on it. <laughs> Again, that's the 80th time. That's been mentioned in this podcast. But yeah, Bottle Rock I saw for the first time for this. But otherwise, I'd, yeah, I'd started with Rushmore and had seen everything else. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's been interesting going back. I was a little worried actually when watching it. It's like, I'm not going to find too much different to talk about in all of these things, but I think we should be able to string something together. Um, <laughs> as you say, it does return to the same themes quite a lot, but uh, we'll, we'll deal with that as we go. And uh, most of these films are 
amongst my favourites, and even the ones that I don't like all that much are still recommended yes. <laughs> for the most part. So um, it would be nice to have a, an episode where it can be more or less unalloydly positive about things. It's not, it's, it is easy to to be negative about things, and it can be enjoyable sometimes, I won't deny it. I, I certainly have done it on more than one occasion, but like you, I... It's, I prefer to be positive. I can't, I'm actually quite a positive person, even if I quite often will go on a rant, because maybe I'm positive about being on rants because it's enjoyable. But <laughs> uh, yes, there are some of these films I like less than others, and there's one particular which I put, which I consider on a, a level below everything else that he's done. Right. But there isn't a Wes Anderson film that I don't get on with, that I don't like. Yeah. Uh, which is quite a rare thing really to find like and okay nine isn't a huge number but it's not nothing either and to find 100 percent of a director's feature film output that you like that's pretty yeah. rare yeah exactly i think we'll come at the end we'll come back and we'll say what perhaps our favorites are and not one but perhaps our least favorite but before that i suppose we should really just begin talking about the films huh yes that's what we do so we begin with Bottle Rocket, which is based on a short film of the same name from a few years before, with the same cast and similar story. Bottle Rocket begins in a mental health facility, though one that seems to bear considerably more resemblance to some sort of resort full of young and beautiful people than a medical institution. Here we meet our heroes, Anthony, played by Luke Wilson, and Dignan, played by Owen Wilson, who are about to leave. Not by the front door, mind you though that option is open to them, but out of the window and over the wall because, despite this being a voluntary facility, Dignan has his heart set on a daring escape. Dignan also has a meticulously, if naively constructed, 75-year plan for their future, which begins with becoming criminals, going on the lam, through various more stages before going straight and creating legitimate businesses. While Anthony is depressive and struggles to see where he fits into the world, Dignan is more of a dreamer who prefers not to let such petty considerations as reality get in the way. After recruiting their friend Bob, played by Robert Musgrave, key characteristic, has a car, to, to join their crew, they rob a bookshop and skedaddle, holing up in a motel elsewhere in Texas. There, Anthony meets immigrant maid Ines, what part of Mexico are you from? Paraguay. <laughs> and falls in love. This disrupts Anthony and Dignan's plans and threatens to damage their friendship, and indeed the two separate for a while, before reuniting to work a real job for a very real criminal in the form of James Cann's Mr Henry. Though Rushmore had been in the works for years before this, Bottle Rocket was Wes Anderson's feature debut, and though it received critical acclaim, flopped commercially and could well have ended his career. It certainly nearly ended Owen Wilson's, who was so disheartened by the failure that he reportedly nearly gave up on acting to join the Marines. And that would have been a pity for so many reasons, most particularly because of his frequent collaborations with Anderson. It also would have been a shame because this is a good film. As an aside, I wonder how much harm is done to this sweet and good-natured comedy, commercially, I mean, by a harsh 15 rating here and an R in the US, both of which seem entirely unnecessary. Though, perhaps I will save another rant on the idiocies of rating systems which punish bad language more harshly than violence for another day. I'm sure you could all stand to wait. 
Bottle Rocket, though only runs to 91 minutes, has a, a low-key, meandering nature that plays to the strengths of his Texas setting. It's cast. It's quite a gift that Owen Wilson has that means that he can do meandering at the same time as his trademark, energetic, slightly manic, isn't everything amazing style. Mm-hmm. And it's plot, where... Nothing much happens because the characters want to do only as much as they need to do in order to do as little as they can. It has some, although not a lot, of the trademark style that would define Anderson's work in the future, but you can see its beginnings here quite clearly. Where Bottle Rocket could suffer, I think, for some viewers, is that it is so clearly dependent on real life, by which I mean the shared history and friendships of co-writers Anderson and Owen Wilson and their families. It relies on the camaraderie between the Wilson brothers. Older brother Andrew is also present as Bob's sibling, future man. And the friendship and understanding between Owen and Wes Anderson. The two met while they were both studying at the University of Texas at Austin, and they lived together, along with the two other Wilson brothers and lifelong friend Robert Musgrave, in a Dallas apartment. But what this produced is easily watchable performances and some excellent, witty and very funny dialogue as well as the origins of the style and composition which has come to define Anderson's work. Bottle Rocket marked Anderson's first collaboration, and perhaps the most important regular collaboration he has had, even more so than Bill Murray or Owen Wilson, with cinematographer Robert D. Yeoman. Anderson and Yeoman worked so well together and had such a mutual understanding, Yeoman has been the DP on all of Anderson's live-action films. While there are, perhaps, moments that feel like private jokes... For me, it all pretty much works, and I find this a charming, very funny, and thoroughly entertaining film. It's an impressive start. Yeah, I think even this early stage, you sort of see some of what you'd later go on to describe as Anderson-y uh, traits. You've, the cinematography, you know, to a degree, but um, certainly in the dialogue, um, it's whether that's a, a byproduct of just Owen Wilson uh, and uh, the kind of family relationship he has, I'm not sure. But uh, a lot of the way that that's written and a lot of the cadence of it, I think, w- works quite well. I think there's a lot of things in Wes Anderson films in general where the dialogue is funny, even when they're not really saying anything particularly funny. It's, it's got a very interesting cadence, I think, of, of the, the way that he's dialogue is delivered where it sounds like jokes even when it isn't jokes yeah there's an example of dialogue i picked from this film that that is spawned from what you're saying at least to me scott because you have the the stuff that's more obviously a joke Mm -hmm. like um when dignan's trying to get uh anthony into the into joining mr henry's crew and to do the job and he says no here are just a few of the key ingredients dynamite pole vaulting laughing gas choppers <laughs> can you see how incredible this is going to be hang gliding come on right <laughs> but uh one of the biggest laughs the film gave me is a thing that feels it's like you say it's not necessarily meant to be a, said as a joke but it's delivered or it's not delivered like a joke but it sounds like one yeah which is uh when anthony's lying beside the pool at bob's house and he's depressed and he says one morning, over at Elizabeth's beach house, she asked me if I'd rather go water skiing or lay out. And I realised that not only did I not want to answer that question, but I never wanted to answer another water sports question or see any of these people again for the rest of my life. <laughs> and that seems to me exactly the kind of thing you're saying too. It's that mm-hmm. that kind of dialogue and that delivery as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, basically, a setup that sort of has become a punchline by the end of it without actually turning into a punchline. Yes. <laughs> 
So you have that, you have, uh, to a degree, it's, I suppose they're not actually family in terms of the characters, but the relationships between family units, if you like, if you want to call their uh, friendships and their relationships. Yeah. You know, the kind of really close bonds of uh, long-term friendships that uh, I, I struggle to say analysed. Um, it's, it's it's more more looked at. Um, another, perhaps another concern I have with Wes Anderson is he, he's not one for putting a lot of politics in his films or really any meaning that of any obvious nature. You you can you can plumb around in it and uh, dig up a few things and see where it's related to and how it sort of reflects your own experience and it can make you reflect on things. But Anderson himself is not really trying to uh, direct you in any particular way with it. Uh, and that's perhaps what you'd see in Bottle Rocket. It's a, it was an enjoyable film and it's... If I if I'd came to this first, I would probably be as much a fan of Wes Anderson as I was had I came to Rushmore first. It's certainly well worth watching for anyone with a, a passing familiarity with his work. It may even be the best starting point. It's probably the least uh, the, the least unconventional or most conventional, whatever way you want to <laughs> parse that. It's the most yeah the most conventional Wes Anderson film while still feeling like a Wes Anderson film, but you can see that he's not quite. Got his. It's maybe a confidence thing, yeah. Or maybe it's just finding his feet in the film business. But it's not full of the Anderson hallmarks. Um, but yeah. it's still just a very well produced film. It's very funny, very entertaining. But yes, in terms of Anderson's style, Rushmore probably is your better entry point. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly one you'd want to add because it's just a fun film. Yeah, um, I definitely regret having waited for so long to actually watch it. So yeah, it's. Certainly been a very enjoyable film and one I could highly recommend to anybody. Yes, um, just a, a rather timely aside, which is um, just serendipitous. On the most recent episode of The Magic Lantern, their friends Cole and Erica, Erica's recommendation for her film is Bottle Rocket. So <laughs> there are other people out there with fine, fine taste. <laughs> I don't have much more to say about it because it, there's not a lot of content in it. And while other films... See, Anderson doesn't necessarily give you answers, but there's certainly a lot of themes running deep in them. There's yeah. not so much in this. It's a much lighter. It sounds like I'm trying to undersell it, and it's not quite what I mean, but it's um, it's not quite so full, this film. It's just a, a lighter confection. Um, yeah, it's but, not a film, along with a lot of Anderson's films, that he's not presenting you with any hard challenges that you must immediately answer. Yeah, no. Here's some um, things you can reflect on at your convenience. He's a much more polite filmmaker in that regard. Yeah. But um, it does have like that kind of final, sad, melancholy note in it that so much of his films have, um, mm-hmm. which where you've watched as many in such a short space of time as I have, kind of become wearing actually which is the only downside I've had to revisiting all of these or visiting for the first time all of these Wes yeah. Anderson films is that there's so often that kind of final melancholy note and I'm like oh god it's too much please stop now yeah. but, you know most people don't watch nine films in three days so <laughs> you know I'm I really I've caused this problem for myself because I'm a professional level procrastinator <laughs> The, the only a couple of things I um, wanted to mention about this is just, it also amuses me. The proclaimers keep popping up in the most unexpected of places. <laughs> you can never truly expect the proclaimers, so... <laughs> I mean, they are like the musical Spanish Inquisition from Monty <laughs> Python, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> never expect the proclaimer Inquisition. Uh, the proclaimers popping up was, was unexpected. Uh, and can I just point out how 
wonderfully ridiculous James Can looks in a kimono, ponytail, socks and sandals. <laughs> Yeah, because I think the first time that I saw James Can was in The Godfather. So your first impression of a an actor tends to stick. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Then you see him in Bottle Walk. It's like, yeah, that's quite different. Uh, He he does not look quite so dignified there or scary. (laughs) Uh, So I guess we'll we'll move on now. Uh, I suppose in this case, Wes Anderson didn't really write a hit, a hit play and direct it. Um, at least it was commercially a hit, though, I guess. So maybe he's not sweating that either, Scott. Let's talk about Rushmore. Yes, so in Rushmore, uh, Jason Schwartzman's Max Fisher very much enjoys his robust schedule of varied extracurricular activities at the Swiss Rushmore Preparatory School, although it turns out that his teachers are rather less impressed with his academic performance. Given a final warning to shape up or ship out, a plot arc that seems to be heading in an entirely conventional Ferris Bueller-esque way takes a sudden right turn when Max becomes, let's euphemistically say, romantically obsessed with new teacher Rosemary Cross, played by Olivia Williams. Further complications occur when his, let's reduce this to friend, Bill Murray's Herman Bloom, a crumpled, lonely industrialist, also takes a fancy to Rosemary, setting off a spiral of conflicts ranging from minor to stalkerific, culminating in Max booting from the school he is so closely tied to his identity and the loss of his few friends. Now, Max is, I find, a compelling character and at once far more adult and far more childish than the adults around him. He is, by turns, a really sympathetic character and a monster, (laughs) grounded and wildly deluded, uh, but all the time a fun character to watch. I think it also marked the first time I'd really seen Murray embody that sadly Paulo-defeated character that he's returned to time and time again over the past few decades with traditionally excellent results. Yeah, nobody Uh, does... Oh, it's like hangdog without the guilt, isn't it? And nobody's yeah. like, you know, that <laughs> deflated, defeated, vacant, hollow expression like Bill Murray. Um, and it'll probably come to its pinnacle in The Life Aquatic, which we'll come to shortly. But yeah, um, yeah I think here, a few years before Lost in Translations, where it's really starting. It's, I don't know how you can get so much mileage out of effectively switching your face off <laughs> that's yes. what it seems like but um, becoming the human impressive. embodiment of a sigh <laughs> yes so if there's a flaw in the film it's come through uh, more through my evolved understanding of women's situation in modern life i mean it's not that max's actions towards rosemary were ever not seen as creepy and stalkery but it's easier to understand max's actions as youthful hijinks ultimately harmless in an environment when there was less understanding of how threatening and demeaning harmless quote-unquote harmless behavior can be seen in a world where you can't readily tell who the harmless and the dangerous men are so that said on referring to this for the first time in quite some time uh, i think olivia will olivia williams does quite a fine job of capturing this i think so perhaps it was more a flaw with me of yesteryear than it was with the film itself you could argue this film's about a lot of things but one that doesn't really say all that much about any of them uh, obsession relationships class identity uh, class identity class identity <laughs> um, they all briefly get landed on before flitting off to some other aspect which is something perhaps common across most of anderson's work but it's no less fun for it uh, if you think you'll be turned off by the quirker aspects of his more recent work then this would be a good entry point into his canon perhaps more so than Bottle Rocket, but it's still... If you squint at it and look funny, you you still think it was a conventional film for the most part until the... uh, Probably until the plays towards the end, which is perhaps pushing it a bit for for a high school play. Um, But what production values, Scott? Yes, what production values. Uh, Higher than most of the rest of the film, (laughs) strangely enough. Yeah, hugely enjoyable. Um, 
still really funny to come back to the, in these days. Um, it being a bit more of a kind of melancholy, having a bit more of a, a darker edge to it in places, I think does give it a bit more teeth than a lot of Anderson's other work. Um, I think that's more or less held up today. Um, it's still quite high on my list of favourite Anderson films. It's a little, perhaps a little different from the stuff he's now more famous for. I think it has a bit more of a obvious hint towards sort of analysing one character in particular as opposed to just being a some big ensemble piece of entertainment, mm-hmm. which a lot of his later stuff does. I think this does at least present a little bit of a challenge to a teen's a teen's identity in that in that sort of uh, that sort of realm. But it does it without being particularly pretentious or um being particularly dark for most of it. I think it manages to carry off the sort of sense of unreality uh, with, with some of uh, some of Schwarzman's actions, as as opposed to how he's able to become almost Walter Mitty-esque at points, but actually managed to carry it off into real life and build an aquarium. Like, why not? Off you go. Seems, <laughs> he seems to be able to do it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really entertaining film, and uh, yes, I, I still heartily recommend it after all these years. I like the kind of visual cohesiveness of this film a lot because um, and it is Anderson's style and as you go and you see that it's all the same too is that so often his sets and his composition feel very stage play like yeah which is why when he got to Fantastic Mr Fox for instance I actually thought he'd found his his perfect medium yeah because everything up to that point he had largely set up like he'd everything every scene and all the composition of every scene was like everything was like a little diorama yeah and animation was the obvious outlet for that but i like the fact that the setting of the film has this wonderful visual cohesiveness of being like a stage play and the composition of the scenes almost all feeling like they could be from a stage and Mm. with very often with either figurative or literal theatrical curtains at the side and that sort of and the blocking to make things look like that yeah i really really like that that style through and it's because the there are plays that are at the center of this film uh, it's sort of cohesive and a different level as well but also it's just a a real trait of anderson's visual style that he would carry on through all of his work and it's really obviously was that aspect is not so present or probably not really present at all in the bottle rocket yeah but it's present here and in every film going forward as to your point about the the inappropriateness of maxi's behavior i had similar thoughts watching this again it's been quite a while since our last watch rushmore mm-hmm. and i'd forgotten about that um and certainly 15-year-olds are capable of doing some things, but for the most part, and with the proviso that obviously I'm not a woman and therefore you know, I'm less like, I'm not, I've got real no real frame of context about how this actually feels, but it seems to me that for 15-year-olds it's probably more easy to dismiss it as idiocy rather than creepiness. Yeah. Which is why the, the film doesn't feel quite as bad for me as it may have done. Uh, I don't want to over-egg that and suggest that that's like a, a massive part of it. It's more just I think he's, the character isn't really aware of how that would seem to another person. Yeah. I was saying, obviously a lot of the film is a 
concerned with how you can relate to other people and the failures yes. of that, um, both in Bill Murray's character and Jason Schwartzman. So the, the, it, it does it does tie up yes. in that regard. It's just just unfortunate that it has to be Olivia Williams gets gets caught in the crossfire. Um, I think maybe it helps too because well, at the age of these characters, three years is still a lot, but. Jason Schwartzman was playing a 15-year-old and he was 18. Yeah, That's far less egregious than that often is and yes. that helps as well, I think. <laughs> um, that he doesn't look so very different from a 50-year-old might. Yeah. Other things about Rushmore I like. This, I, I feel genuinely really sorry for Bert Fisher, Maxie's dad, played by Seymour mm-hmm. Cassell. Like, yeah. Um, because he's he's kind of horrible to him. Not to his face. I don't think his dad knows that he's horrible to him. But you know, he's he feels ashamed of his dad's because he's got like a blue collar profession or something, and he's at this rich school and he's trying to make his father seem more exotic, grand, yeah. however you want to put it, than he actually is. But his dad's a really nice guy and he's really supportive. Yeah, it's not like in a lot of his other films, like fatherhood is a real key theme and particularly you know absent or inadequate fathers mm-hmm. this isn't the case in Rushmore yeah. uh, when Bill Murray is to his kids and it's almost like Max well they're friends it's almost like he's trying to adopt a second father or something yeah but the actual father he's got is a nice guy <laughs> who's um who's a widow but trying to do his best to to raise his son so I feel really sorry for him I think Seymour Cassell plays that role really really compassionately and talking of Seymour Cassell, yet another of the actors that would go on to be in numerous Wes Anderson works, mm. even if in one of them he's largely reduced to be eaten <laughs> by a stop-motion shark. But Rushmore, I like a great deal. It really holds up. And I think perhaps it's still the best entry point if you've not seen Wes Anderson before, because it's got... A fair number of his trademarks isn't quite so full-on Wes Anderson-y as a lot of his other films would be. Yeah, and I think the framework around it is also quite relatable to other films as well. I mean, not yeah, just because yeah. you've seen Bill Burry do this sort of this sort of role a, a number of times in in previous films. Admittedly, probably mostly in Wes Anderson films, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, the kind of coming of age school problem is enough of a has enough tropes running through it that you can. Find some common ground with it, I would think. I get talking about Bill Murray. I'd love to see a supercut, and I suspect such a thing may well exist on YouTube. We'll have a look later. But a supercut of Bill Murray just sort of standing, staring blankly in Wes Anderson films. It could probably last thirty minutes, and it yeah. would never change. And yeah. yet, it's always entertaining. <laughs> it's, it's an impressive skill to be able to do so much by doing well, not just so much, so little by doing nothing, nothing at yeah. all. <laughs> It's A-level standing there and switching everything off. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody interested in grabbing a couple of burgers and hitting the cemetery? (laughs) That's the kind of irreverence that the main card of the next film is all about, at least for a while. And that would be The Royal Tenenbaums. Wes Anderson's work is nothing if not highly contrived. A characteristic sure to be polarising and one perhaps most fully exemplified by the Royal Tenenbaums from 2001. The story of our dysfunctional family of overachievers. Patriarch Royal Tenenbaum, Gene Hackman and Matriarch Ethelene Tenenbaum, Angelica Houston, have three children. 
Financial Wizard Chaz, played as an adult by Ben Stiller, Tennessee's Richie, Luke Wilson, and adopted, critically acclaimed playwright Margot, Gwyneth Paltrow. Due to Royal's extramarital dalliances, the Tenenbaum parents separate, and the children are largely raised by the mother in the family home, with Royal's influence only being seen rarely, and only to demonstrate what a woefully inadequate father he is. Whether due to his influence, or lack thereof, or the pressures of achieving so highly at such a young age, the Tenenbaum children are all varying degrees of cussed up as adults, <laughs> and all involved are stuck firmly in the past, specifically the 70s, as demonstrated visually by their clothing and other things, such as the cars and decor never changing in the contemporary period. And all save Chaz with their glory years firmly in the past in the rearview mirror. After having lived for years in a hotel, former lawyer Royal is now out of money and is forced to seek new accommodation. The fine, upstanding fellow tries to buy himself some time by claiming to his family that he is dying and moving into the family residence with his estranged wife. This coincides with the return home of Chaz, struggling to cope in the aftermath of his wife's death. Margot, who is experiencing difficulties in her marriage to Bill Murray's Dr Raleigh Sinclair. And Richie, who returns for Royal's sake, but also happens to be in love with his adoptive sister. Complicating this further is Ethelene's relationship with Danny Glover's Kofi Annan-styled no, really, Kofi Annan styled <laughs> Henry. At first, Royal is only looking out for himself, as he is wanting to do, but he eventually comes to realise that his family is important to him, and he tries to make amends and help where he can, while the rest of the family come to various degrees of epiphany or resolution. The Royal Tenenbaums is perhaps a little less funny than much of Anderson's other work, and has a stronger sense of melancholy throughout, rather than reserving it, for the most part for the end but it has the same pervasive warmth for its characters and is probably the strongest example of another of Anderson's traits which is his redemptive approach to his character's wrongdoings a kind of hopeful trademark or trait that marks out its stories in a way that sets them apart from the much more common punishment and conviction style the acting in Tenenbaums is superb with Gwyneth Paltrow and Luke Wilson in particular giving understated, nuanced yet affecting performances, and the acting in general anchored by the heft of Angelica Houston and Gene Hackman. Ben Stiller is perhaps the odd one out here, as, while it is possible for him to give a lower-key performance, probably exemplified most well in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, he still comes across as very well Ben Stiller. It's a relatively minor gripe, though. If there's a singular big issue I take with the Royal Tenenbaums, it's with Alec Baldwin's narration, which, as in the majority of cases, is simply unnecessary. On occasions, the device works, of course. Indeed, Anderson himself employed it in a way that fits with the structure in the Grand Budapest Hotel, but while the style of Tenenbaums is somewhere between stage play and novel, the narration is unnecessary and has the added problem of it seeming like Baldwin is trying to sound like Gene Hackman which he, in fact, was. As with most of Wes Anderson's work, though, it is exquisitely crafted and detailed and maintains the aesthetic throughout. There's also plenty of potential to get really deep in this film, perhaps more than a lot of his others. And there's plenty of more subtle references, too, because he's very careful about how he plans things. And as an example, 
When asked by Ben Stiller why Chaz and his sons wear their distinctive red Adidas tracksuits throughout the film, Anderson explained to him it was because red, signi- red signified danger, a preoccupation of Chaz's, and would also allow him to easily spot his children. Yet in subsequent interviews, explained that he always just imagined them in red Adidas tracksuits. Mm. However, I am struck this time in particular by the fact that they wear Adidas tracksuits with Puma trainers. Now, I think most people, if they notice that at all, would think, uh-huh, and... <laughs> uh, but Puma and Adidas were companies famously founded by Warring Brothers. And in the city of Herzogengarach uh, in Germany, home of both businesses, you are either an Adidas family or a Puma family. And no one until one brave mayor, at least, would be seen wearing both. Like, I at could... the same time? Like, yes. one, one shoe puma gathered us. <laughs> That's it. Um, <laughs> uh, now, I could be reading too much into that, but it does seem to be another reference to unresolved familial conflict and the long-term consequences. <laughs> In this case, two highly successful sportswear companies. <laughs> <laughs> well... Chaz is really highly successful. He's got lots of yeah, money yeah, yeah. and a nice house. So. Uh, uh, Royal Tenenbaums isn't my favourite of Anderson's works, but it is a delight nonetheless. Yeah, this, I... I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened with this, because I think the first time I saw it was when I ordered the DVD, because it was a, it's one of my few remaining Region 1 DVDs, which been, you know, back in the days when you bought shiny discs uh, as, a th- as were a thing. Um... So I remember being quite eager to watch it, but I didn't like it all that much in my first viewing, and I'm not really sure I've actually been to it since. And uh, it was interesting coming back to it, and I think I found a lot more to appreciate it in this time round. Um, I suspect I was looking for something a bit funnier uh, on that first viewing and didn't get it. Uh, but knowing that going in certainly uh, forewarns you a little bit. Um, if Rushmore has a sort of meaner edge to it in places, then this... <laughs> Royal Tenenbaums doesn't. It has things that should theoretically be quite mean, like you're faking having cancer, but somehow just isn't. Um, it, as you say, it, it does give them a an understanding and sort of... A, a, the characters always have a, a, an opportunity for redemption, and most of the time they seem to play that out. And I think it's a, a terrific ensemble performance, as you say. Uh, isn't it interesting to see Gwyneth Paltrow being a good actor and not selling twaddle on the internet to gullible morons that's always good <laughs> magical stones and whatnot. yes hmm. yes uh, this I think more than anything else was the one film I was thinking of where it's it's pointing out a lot of things without really giving Anderson's chapter and verse on any one thing in particular so it is bouncing about between various aspects of family relationships and uh, depending on your particular circumstances or particular proclivities you can uh, you'll probably pick up more on one strand of it than the other and run with that for analysis but I think it's doing a good job of just presenting all that as a a buffet that you can eavesdrop in on and pick and choose from uh, without really committing to any one particular thread of it of course I suppose the main thing is just just recon- reconciliation with father figures but you know how deep it goes into that I'm not quite sure it actually really gets anywhere with it I mean it, it's it's doing a lot of entertaining things along the way that's probably the main thing it's certainly the 
the main takeaway for enjoying it. Um, I think, like yourself, it's not it's not my favourite um, Anderson film. I wonder if a lot of people watch this because, if I recall correctly, this might have been the first one that was pushed quite heavily by a studio on release. Not that the other ones were particularly small films, I guess, given the, the scope of things, but this was the first one that was pushed probably because of the, the, the name recognition of the cast. And I suspect a lot of people didn't know quite know what to make of it. I mean, I, probably, I certainly didn't, and I had some <laughs> experience with Wes Anderson films before then. Uh, so perhaps not a great starting point, but it's a, it's a rewarding film to watch. Um, really does showcase some of the uh, theatrical uh, staging elements that Anderson returns to, as you, as you point out. And uh, it's a very interesting looking film. The, the colour palettes are just so particular um, mm-hmm. and does give it a very distinctive style that you may come to envisage as being a bit more Andersony um in, in future. But uh, yeah, it's it's not the, the single most enjoyable uh, film, but it's perhaps his most complicated one and definitely deserves to be looked at in that regard. Yeah, I think so. Um, you mentioned about like the, the father stuff. I mean, I'm not really giving any resolution to that but maybe that says something in and of itself yeah because yeah. a lot of his films there's clearly a parenthood in general and fatherhood in particular whether it's an absent father or an ad- inadequate father or somebody going to be a father yeah. and it comes up so often um but doesn't always have an answer and maybe that's that's the point yeah yeah uh, which is maybe a bit more reflective of real life i mean how it's very rare for any situation to be tied up nicely in a bow and delivered in, a, in 90 minutes, isn't it? So, Yes. Um, I don't know. Um, oh, just as you mentioned, 90 minutes there, this is actually one of the few Wes Anderson films that isn't. Um, yeah. This one's yeah. like an hour 50, more or less, I think. Um, but yeah, there's he's fairly consistently on the 90-minute mark, or not far off of it. Yeah. Which I think quite refreshing in this age where films are two and a half hours with no particular need to be. Yes, yes. He restrains himself. Um, I mean, he's been accused of being self-indulgent in a lot of ways, but, um, well, I might argue that, silly. Running time is not one of them. Yeah. Which is nice. Uh, yeah, so, I'm right on the edge. I don't know what comes next. Oh, I do. It's Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu. <laughs> Yes, um, yes, these are only going to get more tortured. <laughs> but damn it, I prepared a quote for everyone that I wanted to get in. I'm going to try. But, uh, tortured linking devices very much on brand for FUDs on film. So. Oh, absolutely, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. If, if there is any one film that established Anderson as Lord Whimsy Whimsington III, <laughs> it would be The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, where Bill Murray returns as the titular famous but faded oceanographer, oceanographer, sea fella, sea guy, <laughs> seaman, um, who swears a happy enmity upon the jaguar shark that killed his best friend and sets a course for vengeance. On this trip, he'll take the recently discovered probable son Owen Wilson's Ned Plimpton and Kate Blanchett's Jane Winslet Richardson, a journalist that he hopes will capture the journey in a positive light and bring him back the respect that he feels he has unfairly lost of late. Also joining the trip are his usual crew headed by Willem Dafoe and some interns that really ought to be issued red shirts going up against nature, pirates and Zizou's bitter rival, oceanographer Jeff Goldblum. 
Now, it would be foolish to deny the whimsy of this. Just look at the underwater life scenes that have more in common with the fantastic Mr. Fox than a Dave and Attenborough joint, or the incredible, in both senses of the word, layout of Zizou's vessel, which it is often as much of a storybook as it is a film, um, however... You can't write it off entirely as a journey of whimsy either, perhaps more than any of his other films, Anderson undercuts it with action scenes, action scenes, (laughs) that are entirely at odds with the rest of the content, but still incredibly enjoyable. Wes Anderson and Gunfight, you don't (laughs) immediately put those two together. (laughs) No. Uh, It's a hell of an ensemble cast performance again with an excellent soundtrack that stands out even amongst Anderson's typically excellent soundtracks, and I find this one, this one one of the most entertaining of Anderson's works. Until relatively recently, this would have been my favourite film of his. I don't think it's doing a great deal to further knowledge of humanity in any <laughs> regard, uh, and given the number of characters that it's got, it's not really going all that deep on any of them, but they're all memorable, and they're all entertaining, as is the film overall, and sometimes that's enough. How often do you feel sorry for um, Willem Dafoe? He's not typically a sympathetic character in a lot of films, is he? Exactly. uh, (laughs) As Klaus in The Life Aquatic, he is. Yeah, you're talking about kind of the whimsy and things in this too. Um, And then you mentioned the, because very much thinking of it, you mentioned the design of the ship, you know, and it it belies reality, that sort of Mm. thing. But how often is it the set design that breaks the fourth wall? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. I mean, you might have something like Dogville where the whole thing is never meant to be we've always like sketched out like a rehearsal room. That's, yeah. that's that a very specific thing that lasts the whole film. But yes, um, there's a sequence in Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu where the set design breaks the fourth wall. And that's, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Not that I can recall <laughs> immediately anyway. <laughs> now, I think when we spoke about Isle of Dogs last year, that I described it as the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson film. Having come back to the life aquatic for the first time in a few years now, like no, I think this is the pinnacle. This is um Ur Wes Anderson. <laughs> this is the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson film of all time. And I love this film. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that works for me. But uh certainly if you were unsure about whether his particularly whimsical style stylings are for you. Don't start with this one. Yeah, um, I think I mean, even if you find it this thing, so you, you probably want to ease yourself into that world anyway. But this one, I just, it's a visual treat. You mentioned the music, Scott. Um, so Charges uh, renditions of. Uh, acoustic guitar renditions of David Bowie songs that he himself translated into Portuguese. Yeah. Um, is one of my favourite film soundtracks ever. Yeah. Um, much as I love the Bowie originals, because obviously, well, I'm not mad, they're <laughs> <Yeah>. brilliant. <laughs> uh, these are fantastic as well, and they're not direct translations to. I've looked into some of the, I don't speak Portuguese more than a handful of words, but I've looked into some of the translations. They're actually, and you can tell actually, I think, if you've got any grasp of the language at all, that they're not direct translations, but they work really, really well. And they just, even if you're just an English speaker who has no concept of them, they sound really good. Yeah. Um, sort of familiar yet different. And yeah, it's just, it's such a vibrant, bright, wonderful film, but also has that 
trademark Anderson Melancholy is very special at the end. So the end should sort of be uplifting <laughs> because he's successfully made the second part of his film and kind of come to some sort of inner peace. Yeah, that scene when he's on the steps with the kid, um, yeah. Klaus's nephew, I said it's just kind of achingly melancholy. And it kind of gets to you after a while. As again, mm-hmm. you watch nine three days, it wears on you a bit. So I'm feeling a bit down right now. Which has enjoyed these films. Um, it is perhaps also the strongest example of his incredibly painstakingly symmetrical composition. Yeah, in particular, the shots in the submarine at the end, um, which coincides also with the most. Vacant Bill Murray, vacant Bill Murrayness. Yeah. Uh, I'm not convinced his facial expression changes for the entire film. <laughs> and you know that that should be a terrible thing. That should be really boring. Yet isn't, uh, which is a kind of a, a magical mystery in itself. I think too. This is was a fairly critically successful film I don't recall now if it was commercially successful I know Royal Tenenbaums was but how many films let alone if not by this point a straight up indie filmmaker set up with indie filmmaker sensibilities how many films at all let alone one of this category produced special edition Adidas shoes as they released <laughs> a couple of years ago and sold out instantaneously that was weird yeah <laughs> That was really weird. Like, special edition Steve Zissou shoes by like the second largest sports manufacturing company in the world. Sports <laughs> manufacturing company in the world. Right? Okay. Have you seen that film Adidas? <laughs> okay. Good, I guess. That's, that was quite a severe thing when that happened. Um, According to Wikipedia, who I trust implicitly, the film was released to mixed reviews and was a box office flop. Since releases has garnered a cult following, it's now viewed more positively by critics, although cult following is a strange thing to say about a film with a box office of 35 million. But um, yes. anyway, I, I get the point. But yeah, um, I remember liking this very, very much at the time, and I like it just as much now. So it only goes to show that we were right then and we're right now. Yeah, I, I, was saying, I, I liked it immediately. Because we are trendsetters. Maybe we didn't tell as many people that we liked it, so they didn't really know we were setting a trend, but yes. we were. <laughs> we're tastemakers, Scott. Yes. Um, not really what we wanted to do in this episode, too. The, the only thing that really bothered me about this film was Kate Blanchett's accent. I, I think it's probably well established. I am no fan of Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. I think she's fine in this. I just don't understand why she's got that kind of breathy, high pitched English accent, which was just. It added nothing. There was no reason for the character to be English at all. Yeah. I mean, not that there was necessarily any reason for Willem Dafoe to be German, but um, <laughs> her accent, and that's really kind of unpleasant to the ears. It just seemed unnecessary. But <laughs> kind of scraping around for something to say that other than that, like, this film's really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's probably, it's probably pretty obvious um, if you know anything about it at all, but it's uh, sort of based on... The, the travels of Jacques Cousteau, the famous French naturalist and cinema well, not cinematographer, I guess, and filmmaker, and his book The Calypso, which I quite amusing to hear, it's called The Belafonte, because Harry Belafonte <laughs> was famous for Calypso songs. That probably counts as some sort of very wry joke. Yeah. Um, it's uh, 
sort of forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, it's, but it's kind of like a really kind of fantastical, surreal, and absurd. It's not absurd is one thing that's like true about Wes Anderson films. So it's a surreal, absurd to take on Jacques Cousteau's adventures with added animation by Henry Selick. Yeah. Um, he of A Night Before Christmas and particularly for the films that we particularly care for, Coraline. Yes. Um, the animation also made me think very much of Michel Gondry, particularly The Science of Sleep. Mm-hmm. Yes, The Life Aquatic. It is It is great. So watch that. So I can't even do a 10-year slinking device to the next one, so I'm just going to uh, ask... <laughs> How can a train be lost? It's on rails. <laughs> and that train would be the Darjeeling Limited. Wes Anderson's films about absent or inadequate parents continue with the Darjeeling Limited. Uh, this theme is fairly obvious in his work, the daddy issues in particular, but as I've already mentioned, when you watch nine of his films in three days, it <laughs> really stands out. Um, and perhaps never more so than in this title. Here, three strange brothers, played by Owen Wilson, Jason Schwartzman, and newcomer Adrian Brody. Well, you know, newcomer to Wes Anderson's <laughs> yeah. world. I mean, not just he was pretty established by that point, you know, having like had an Academy Award and stuff, or at least been nominated <laughs> for one. They meet in India uh, about a year after their father's death to try to repair their estranged relationship. They take a cabin aboard the Darjeeling Limited, a train on India's vast rail network, that will take them towards a meeting with their mother, Angelica Houston who has gone into seclusion in an abbey in the Himalayas. The brothers, in the confines of a train, really needle each other and tempers flare, while truths are also uncovered. The bandaged Francis, Wilson, was in a near-fatal motorbike accident that was perhaps not quite such an accident. Writer Jack Schwartzman is unhealthily obsessed with his ex-girlfriend and scared of commitment, while being afraid at the same time of letting go of the past. And Peter, Brody, is terrified of his impending fatherhood, not least because, while he loves his wife, always assumed that he would get divorced, and he wasn't prepared for this eventuality. Each also tortures and punishes himself in his own way. Jack continually checks his ex's voicemail, while Peter suffers inexplicable headaches while wearing his father's old glasses which still contain the prescription lenses. <laughs> As the film progresses, they shed their baggage, literal baggage, which is also, of course, metaphorical emotional baggage. Yeah, that that was a bit on the nose, really, wasn't it? <laughs> it's perhaps less artful than a lot of yeah. his work, yes. Um, and the film takes an unexpectedly tragic turn, uh, by far the Darjeeling Limited's most effective portion, and wounds begin to heal, perspectives are corrected, and relationships are restored. There are no Wes Anderson films to date that I don't like, but this one is by far the one I'm least enamoured of. Yeah. Like much of his work, it meanders, and it's open to criticisms of lacking any particular point, but here is where I feel those criticisms are probably most valid. It is still, though, as you would expect, beautiful, with the varied and often highly saturated colours inherent to India a perfect fit for the director's aesthetic. The performances are also good, with the bickering of the three brothers being very believable, and it has a strong emotional core. It just lacks... something. Uh, A certain je ne sais quoi that makes other films special, but the Darjeeling Limited simply 
fine. Yeah, it's the, the one Wes Anderson film I remember watching thinking, I did not like that, and I hadn't gone back to it since 2007 or whenever this came out. Um, and so I was trepidatious about returning to it, and I didn't like it more this time round. I, I, I would now say that I didn't dislike it, but I, I would struggle to recommend it to anyone, even if to uh, an Anderson completist. I think it's his clumsiest film by a margin. Um even obvious visual metaphors of shedding baggage aside, which was just <laughs> eye-rolling in places. But even before that, there is... It's just not as sharply observed and not as believable, I think, as uh, other works that he's done. Uh, the bickering between the brothers works, but doesn't really connect on any level. And I feel like for about a half to two-thirds of the film, it's really struggling to try and find a connection to any sort of emotion at all and failing. Uh-huh. And it only tries to get there by doing the equivalent of nuking a city uh, <laughs> in emotional terms out of absolutely nowhere. It um, is a bit drama bomb. I, mean, yeah, I found uh, that, that scene very affecting, so I thought it was well played, but the actual how they get to it is very it's like, uh, quick, stick something in here. It feels yeah. a bit like that. I mean, it's it's effectively done, but it's it's so out of nowhere uh, mm-hmm. that it feels basically exploitative. Um, it, it, it's it it made me a little bit angry when I when it showed up again. It's like this is like go away. This is this is too obvious a manipulation. I expect better from you. I'm not I'm not not angry. I'm just disappointed. Um, Sorry, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Dad issues again. Um, but if you can see past that, then there is a lot of decent uh, moments in there. Um, there's lots of individually nice moments of interplay between the various combinations of characters that they, they put their way through this, and uh, there's enough there that I can... I got to the end of it and went going, yeah, but I wasn't all that unhappy with it on a review, but it's... I don't know. It's, it's I'm with you. It's, it's the least essential of Anderson's films. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just doesn't hang together as well as anything else. Um, if you're so inclined, it's worth watching just for the visual aspects of it because it is absolutely beautiful and the locations are stunning and it's uh, a feast for the eyes. Um, unfortunately, it's not quite the dramatic feast that I'd hoped for or indeed the comedic feast. Um, it's fine, but no, it's it's a definite level below the other uh, Anderson works that we've spoken of today and will go on to speak about. Yeah, and I wonder if any of that's to do with the fact that it's got three writers um, mm. whether that maybe changes the focus a bit or because I do wonder if the main writers are Jason Schwartzman and Roman Coppola who like um, Anderson and Owen Wilson having a shared history perhaps Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman by dint of having grown up together and being related to have their own shared history yeah. and it makes it let more their story than less Anderson's and whether that affects it yeah um, and as we'll see in the film that we'll come to next that when he actually tries his hand adaptation turns out very well but I wonder if it's maybe he's got a bit less of Anderson's own voice in that and whether that's why um, because I don't yeah. I can't, I'm trying to work out why if, I mean, it's, it's not every not every film from any given director can be great anyway um, it's never going to happen it's, but I just wonder if the why of it here is that it's less his film yeah yeah uh, without knowing enough about the actual production writing of it, I, I'm only 
it's like conjecture on my part at the moment. I need to look into it at some point. Um, but I just wonder if that's why there's less of his voice in it, which means it doesn't feel quite as much like a Wes Anderson film. In visuals, absolutely, but in content, much less so. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that seems that seems to, to jibe with the rest of it, yes. Again, we're only talking about nine films in total that he's produced so far, so if you like Wes Anderson, then you should probably at least be completionist. It's worth watching. Mm-hmm. It, it does look lovely. It's so wonderfully colourful, and I mean, it, it has, it goes down this sort of path that so many films feel tempted to do to of go to somewhere that at least from your point of view it's an exotic location in this case yeah. India and you make it a wee bit touristy video looking yeah um, I mean it's a beautiful and varied country but there's also there's a lot of stuff that doesn't look nice like any country yeah um, but we only see the nice bits here whereas um, some of these films set in the United States you see maybe more of a mixture rather than just like the nicest looking parts or something like that yeah um, I can forgive it that because it is sort of framed as being as much well Road movie, I guess not, but rail movie. But they are being yeah, tourists yeah. on it, so they're going to the tourist locations. So Rail- railroad movie, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's not a strong criticism of that, but it sort of it veers towards that. Um, but what I was going to say though is it kind of that is ameliorated somewhat, or mollified somewhat by the fact that kind of like the the typical way in India of even a fairly. I'm not sure to put this a fairly modest accommodation. Um, still, will be painted in like very bright, strong primary um, or secondary colours, mm-hmm. um, and that those kind of tie in well with Anderson's visual style and the way things are presented on the train and the way he uses colour generally. So, it actually, it's quite a good visual fit. Yeah, um, yeah. For such a colourful country, um, in terms of typical clothing and the way houses are so often painted that sort of thing yes if you like Wes Anderson watch it for completion like completionism sake um, mm. it's just that it's it's the least essential so you could put that very much ninth on the list out of the nine and going to be forewarned that you may be disappointed by it but it still it looks lovely and you know, for 90 minutes of a thing looking lovely that's not so bad yeah <laughs> um, and as I mentioned at the start too, there aren't any of his films I don't like. This is just the one that I like the least. Yeah. <laughs> it's all relative, as most of his films are. Because I am determined to follow through these <laughs> terrible tenuous lines because I wanted to get close to films in Scott. You've started, um, so you'll finish. Yes. Yes. Um, they say all foxes are slightly allergic to linoleum, <laughs> but it's cool to the paw. Try it. Now, I think we know the answer to this already, but Perhaps we should tell people, should we try Fantastic Mr Fox? Yes, yes. Um, That's the worst one yet, and I do apologise, but I just like that quote. <laughs> I've struggled to get in most. Right, now, to that end, I've not read the Roald Dahl uh, book that this is adapting uh, through the medium of stop-motion animation, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is a loose interpretation of it. Uh, Mr. Fox, voiced by George Clooney, settles down to a quiet life as a newspaper columnist after discovering that his wife, Mrs. Fox, voiced by Meryl Streep, is pregnant, giving up a wild life of chicken rustling from evil British farmers. Years later, the now-teenage son, Ash, voiced by Jason Sportsman, is struggling to fit in with society and his family, exacerbated by the arrival of his cousin, Christopherson, 
uh, voiced by Eric Chase Anderson, to stay while his father recovers uh, from an illness and is seemingly effortlessly better at everything than ashes. Perhaps relatedly, Mr Fox undergoes something of a midlife crisis and attempts to recapture his glory days by robbing some chickens from the e- farms of the evilest British farmers of them all, August Bunsen Bean, voiced by Robin Hallstone, Hugo Guinness and, most importantly, Michael Gambon. Their response is swift and entirely asymmetrical, with Bean in particular out for the blood of Mr Fox, his family and every other woodland creature in a 10 mile radius, most of whom are also voiced by actors uh, we've already mentioned in previous works, and a good few of which are in roles so small it must surely speak to Anderson's likability as a director if you're going to come back for (laughs) this meagre outing. Um, While uh, it's also managing some perhaps surprisingly delicate and subtle relationship dramas uh, given the overall concept of the piece. Now, I think I was a little nonplussed on my first viewing of Fantastic Mr Fox back in the day and hadn't really given it all that much thought since then. I think in the week since uh, re-watching it, I've thought about it pretty much every day, perhaps <laughs> mainly to work out what the hell was wrong with me at the time. Uh, it's doing a much, more believe, uh, much better and a much more believable job of exploring family relationships than the Darjeeling Limited does, despite being nominally about foxes. <laughs> Uh, so yes it's very funny and I think it does as good a job of being entertaining for the kids and adults as anything I can think of although this is largely based on my inner child rather than any reports from actual children Um, and it has a absolutely gorgeous visual style that's well, only not unique because Isle of Dogs is a thing now Um, (laughs) absolutely one of Anderson's best now like I say, I've not read the original, but I mean, if it's a typical Dal thing, then Dal stories tend to have a bit of an edge to it, a bit more of a meanness to it, and I don't really get a lot of that from this. It's uh, it's hinted at and implied that the the farmers are very evil. We're told it a number of times, but they don't really do all that much to be, you know, disturbingly evil. They're certainly very committed, but um, in terms of moustache twirling or being something like actually dark, no, not so much. And I don't know if that was uh, something that's just been adapted out by choice or if it's uh, a byproduct of what's actually in that work. I don't know. Um, but all I can say is that it's resulted in a really great, really enjoyable film. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just, just absolutely terrific looking and deeply funny. Um, yeah, it's really great. I don't know what I could possibly pick holes in this film for so i'm not going to it's just really good <laughs> yeah. yeah uh i was similar to you um i think i don't well rather i wouldn't have gone quite so far as nonplussed but i thought the first time i watched fantastic my first fox which i suspect i probably saw with you um, you would think so yeah it was it was okay you know um mm-hmm. And again, I then I watched it again a couple of years ago, and I thought, "Wait, this is brilliant! What was I thinking?" Yeah. Um, and having watched it again for this third time, just um, a couple of days ago, in preparation for this podcast, I'm like, "Yep, I definitely agree with second viewing Drew, not first viewing Drew, because yeah. this is great." <laughs> uh, I mean, as I mentioned a little a few moments ago, this feels like the most obvious style of filmmaking for. Wes Anderson's style and aesthetic. Mm-hmm. He creates little dioramas, very carefully composed things, and this must just be um, a dream for him to work with this. It's slow, painstaking work, stop motion mm-hmm. animation. I think that's well known, but the actual way he can f- 
frame everything so perfectly, so precisely. It must be a joy to him. Uh, which So it's no surprise that he came back to this with Isle of Dogs, but it's perhaps a surprise that he ever left. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be surprised that if it's just the sheer amount of time that stop motion animation requires, maybe the reason he returned to live action because it just feels such a such a perfect fit for him. Yeah, uh, it is. Yes, it's touching and charming and funny and looks beautiful. Um, and uh, yeah, there's very there's pretty much nothing negative to say about this. I have read. Fantastic Mr. Fox, or at least I recall having it been read to me. Right. However, that was by my teacher in primary three. <laughs> uh, it's the only time that I can remember for certain reading it. And I like Roald Dahl a lot, but that's not one whose particular plot points have stuck with me to any degree. So whether it's a good adaptation, I am really not in a position to speak to. Mm-hmm. But it is... It is fun, funny, quirky, charming, humorous, whimsical and odd and absurd, like all of the best Wes Anderson stuff, you know, all of it. Uh, yeah, it's just a fantastic, a fantastic film. And <laughs> I don't know if I'd noticed this credit before. I feel that I hadn't. It seemed to come as a surprise to me yesterday. But um, there's a point where uh, Michael Gambon's farmer's assistant is like sitting at like a campfire basically singing a wee song and I was like this is quite a joint melody and I'm like that voice is kind of familiar but I couldn't place it and it turns out to have been Jarvis Cocker yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote a bad song PT <laughs> that was news to me actually <laughs> look at that yeah I was not expecting that yeah um, and it has some of the things that have been in quite a few Wes Anderson films that it's something that has really appealed to me too it, I think because it has such comic potential and he often manages to uh, maximise that potential of having if not unrelated but sort of maybe slightly tangential things happening in background shots yeah. uh, and this is another film of his that has that too and I just I don't know why I think it's because it is sort of separate from the action you have this like, dramatic irony of the characters not knowing what's happening but the audience do and I just find that sort of stuff so often very funny Wes Anderson does it really well mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if it's just to do this film or maybe it's coming on from it being George Clooney that's delivering the line but I remember how amused I was in Old Brother We Are Thou by George Clooney's constant repetition of stuff yeah um, and again, it's coming from the writing, but I don't know, maybe his delivery helps as well. It's in that film, I was talking about um, his hair, and we're in a tight spot, and I'm a dapper damn man, damn it. And in this, he's, he's always talking about bandit hats, which just for some reason really, really tickles me. Uh, and this film's full of stuff like that, just kind of wee things. His whistle, the bandit hats, um, all the kind of running jokes and things, and with uh, Kylie the possum's eyes. Yeah, uh, it's it's just it's a rich film. It looks so beautiful, it's so wonderfully animated, and yeah, I love this film. It's great. That's all I have to say. It is wonderful. Yes, I concur. We have reached concord and disagree <laughs> this discussion, despite it being out of service for a few years now. Yes, it's a disappointing trip. 
Yes, I'm on good stroke, terrible form tonight, depending on your point of view. <laughs> the best of forms, it was the worst of forms. So, I suppose we should move on to a film in which somebody's daughter gets abducted by beige lunatics. <laughs> like the disguised New York of the Royal Tenenbaums, the unfamiliar exoticism of India and the Darjeeling Limited, or the high seas of the life aquatic with Steve Sisu, Wes Anderson's locations are not quite of this world, or at least not quite of this reality, and Moonrise Kingdom's no exception with the fictional New England island of New Penzance being located out with the laws and province of the real world. Here we find Scoutmaster Ward, Edward Norton, and his group of khaki scouts at Camp Ivanhoe, preparing for the 1965 Scout Hullabaloo. Here we don't find that which is conspicuously missing. Sam, Jared Gilman, the troop's least popular member. An old soul probably Davy Crockett's, in a 12-year-old's body, who has renounced the beige lunatics and run away with Susie, Cara Hayward, the pen pal, to whom he writes things like, Dear Susie, I accidentally built a fire while I was sleepwalking. I have no memory of this, but my foster parents think I am lying. It's his um, pen pal that he met the summer before during a performance of Benjamin Britten's Noah's Flood, where she was a raven. These things are important. <laughs> like Sam, Susie is old before her time, world-weary. In many ways, she recalls the young Margot Tenenbaum and fed up of her family, where she feels that she does not fit in. The two young would-be lovers learn about each other and develop a relationship as they follow the old chick-chaw migratory trail while avoiding the members of the troop sent to look for Sam but definitely not avoiding the Lord of the Flies references. <laughs> Elsewhere on the island are frantic parents, Francis McDormand and Bill Murray, Scoutmaster Ward, the remainder of the troop, and the local police captain, Bruce Willis, trying to find them, with the threat of an immense storm looming over them all. As Sam and Susie go on their coming-of-age journey, the difficulties and sadnesses of the lives of the adults involved in the story are exposed the calcified, loveless relationship of Susie's lawyer parents, and the loneliness of Captain Sharp, and the director's usual sense of melancholy hints towards similar unhappiness in the future for our two young heroes. Yet, as is often the case in his work, there is a sense of hope and opportunity here as well. While the film evokes Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows, an acknowledged influence by the director, it is less hard, more hopeful than that film. Moonrise Kingdom displays many Anderson trademarks beyond those already mentioned. His sense of colour being one, though here they tend more to earthy tones than is typical for him, and his wonderful, often comic composition. More usually, he uses background action for laughs. Here it's the trampoline on the right-hand side of the frame. Plot-wise, the final act feels a little forced, though it is enlivened by a wonderful turn by Tilda Swinton, looking like some kind of science fiction flight attendant, (laughs) as a woman who inhabits her job so fully as if it were her personality, receiving no name other than social services. Mm -hmm. In fact, the acting is almost universally excellent, and probably the film's greatest strength. Frances McDormand and Bill Murray are naturally excellent, and the two leads act beyond their tender, and highly unusually for Hollywood, nearly appropriate for their character's age. (laughs) Cara Hayward, 
coming across as particularly accomplished. And special mention goes to Bruce Willis, who, in recent years, tends to register as just picking up a paycheck, or, more commonly, arsehole. (laughs) But it reminds me here that he is capable of a sensitive, vulnerable and understated performance that has the power to be affecting. Odd, unreal, beautiful, melancholy, sad, hopeful, funny, whimsical, quirky. A Wes Anderson film, in short. (laughs) Yes, and unsurprisingly, another one that I enjoyed. I believe I enjoyed then. I meant to go back and check what it said about on our previous podcast. I, as far as I can recall, I, I liked it at the time. I must admit, it's not something that's really made all that much of an impact on me in, uh, in terms of a film I even thought about returning to in the intervening time. Again, I try to do that as little as possible anyway, I suppose, of late, but I hadn't actually seen it since seeing it at the cinema. Um, I enjoyed it very much. Um, I agree with everything you're saying about the acting in particular. Um, the two young leads are really great and really sympathetic, and it's very easy to get on board with them. It's like it is actually a bit like it's a young Rushmore now. Sorry, a young uh, Max and a young uh, Margot uh, sort of meeting um, a bit earlier in their lives to a degree. Um, that relationship, I think, works very well. It's very, uh, very entertaining, and uh, I agree entirely. <laughs> it's so rare seeing Bruce Willis do good acting in that. <laughs> it's uh, quite the treat to behold. Certainly, uh, over in recent years, if I'm honest, I'm not sure I've got all that much to say about Moonrise Kingdom. Um, I suppose you could maybe open it up to being a point where Anderson's trademarkisms maybe seeming seeming to get a little bit close to being formulaic but I don't think it's a formula that stopped working so I don't really have an issue with that I suspect some people might uh, think there's a bit too too much commonality between this and uh, the past, certainly Darjeeling Limited and Life Aquatic um, Royal Tenenbaums the Maybe you've had enough of having these sort of quirkily set up and strangely coloured large ensemble cast pieces. I don't. Um, could happily watch uh, one of these every two or three years for the rest of my life. Quite enjoyed Moonrise Kingdom again. We watched it this time round. It would certainly be in the top half of the films we talk about. It's just really enjoyable, quite an easy watch, um, and just immaculately produced as uh, as with all of Anderson's works. Yes, very good, very good indeed. Yes, I. Uh- I tend to agree with I think it's probably the one that there's least to say about. Mm. Um, perhaps because by this point his career is very much not in a groove because that sounds derogatory, um, but kind of just like sort of well practiced, perhaps. Yeah, put it this way: if we talked about Moonrise Kingdom first for some reason, we'd have an awful lot to talk about. But <laughs> it being towards the end of the podcast, we might be repeating ourselves. Yes, yes. I, I'm yeah. conscious of that, so I don't want to keep repeating the how he's exploring family and all that stuff. We've we've covered that a bit in the past, so I think it's, that's probably the reason I'm giving it perhaps seemingly short shrift. But no, it's, it's hugely enjoyable and uh, definitely worth looking at. Yeah, um, I think yeah, it's a very good film, but it's perhaps. There's less about it that is in some way remarkable than a lot of other films. There might be like a particular thing in other films that you could really pick out. Yeah, yeah, um, that's fair. But again, uh, and it's quite nice to like talk about uh, a group of films that were pretty much, well, not 100% positive and on, but in sort of general, like, like all of, yeah, to some yeah. degree or another, which is <laughs> nice. It's, there, there's less 
in particular to say about this film other than that it's it's very good so mm. you should probably watch it but <laughs> but uh, we will then move on to yet another um I was going to say yet another Wes Anderson film. Yes. <laughs> the Wes Anderson episode. Surprisingly. Mm. Yeah. Now, hold on. Give me a second, Scott. There's some sort of trend here that I can't quite put my finger on. <laughs> While I think about that, are you going to tell us about the Grand Budapest Hotel? <laughs> yeah, so framing devices aside, the Grand Budapest Hotel mainly concerns itself with the glory days of the now-faded high-end hotel in between world wars when it was staffed by the legendary concierge M. Gustave, played by Ralph Fiennes. He's more than happy to serve the needs of all guests, particularly, it would seem, lonely widows. While showing the newly hired lobby boy, Tony Revolori's Zero Mustafa, the ropes, events kick off in earnest when one widower dies, leaving Gustave a priceless painting in her will to the abject disgust of her family. He is quickly framed for her murder, and, aided by Zero and his girlfriend, Sorcia Ronan's Agatha, he must escape from jail and clear his name all under the shadow of increasing militarisation. Now, that is perhaps an overly succinct summation for a hundred minutes of exceptionally entertaining action. Um, it's a sort of Wes Anderson does Agatha Christie without taking it altogether too seriously. Uh, it's probably also my favourite Ralph Fiennes performance. I don't know if he'd agree this isn't stretching his dramatic chops all that much, but it shows a real ear for comic timing that I don't believe I'd associated with him before, and it's as much of a pleasure to watch now as it was then. As In style, I suppose it's most similar to The Life Aquatic, a shaggy dog story adventure with purposely twee effects and unlikely characters, and by this point in his arc, you could be thinking that we've seen quite enough of that thing. Uh, but, uh, as mentioned just just there, um, I'd happily watch something like this every few years for the end of my days if Wes Anderson <laughs> sees fit to make them. Uh, for my money, Hotel um, takes everything that was good about Life Aquatic with Steve Azu and gives it a little bit of polish, uh, just to perfect I absolutely adore the uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, it's with the possible ex- exceptions of uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's probably the most out and out fun uh, film that he's made. It's it, it's just effortlessly charming, um, and it, it's such a powerhouse performance from Ralph Fiennes as well. It's really really great, and I don't think I'd. It's not that I, that I didn't rate Ralph Fiennes' performance, but I just didn't think he had this in him. And it was really, really compelling, and I really enjoyed watching him. Uh, arguably eat the scenery a little bit, but it's such tasty scenery. Yeah, <laughs> so that's pretty. when he's at his best, though, isn't it? Yes. Because <laughs> you mentioned Ralph Fiennes, and I don't really like him all that much, but sometimes he'll just come along and really surprise me. Mm-hmm. I've always, I think of most of the times of things I've seen him in, I have liked him, but he tends to play rather reserved, cold English characters, if you like. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's a fair point. It's so, maybe his roles more than him. Yeah, you can't really yeah. warm to him the same way you can with this guy. Um, but there are there are times. I mean, he's been in a lot of the Harry Potter films, which I don't care for much. But I kind of like him in that. Though it's mm-hmm. when somebody sort of. Trying to act under all that makeup, it's quite hard. All that those prosthetics yeah, yeah. too. But there have been times when he's really surprised me. Again, maybe it it isn't the actor; it's the role. But I've been put off because he's been playing sort of 
kind of slightly upper class reserved English guys mm. yeah, and things like of English patient and stuff yeah and it's put me off a bit but then you're talking about the absolutely manic terrifying performance in Schindler's List mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and I expected not to like him the character begins as a complete asshat <laughs> and you think it's going to be pl- but in the Bond films as M or yeah. what will become eventually M actually no he's really likeable he has a wee character arc in M too because you think he's just sort of this um, super silly civil servant bean mm. counter guy and he's not and that actually works really well so I like I do actually quite like Ralph Fiennes but I didn't find his comedic chops in this a revelation because I've seen in Bruges oh of course yes but uh, yeah um, which is a much smaller role of course but yeah. um, having seen in Bruges I know just how sort of um, entertaining you can be while being a chewy uh, scenery chewing yeah. um <laughs> crazy person uh, a different type of performance from the Grand Budapest Hotel of course but <laughs> yeah and I mean Wes Anderson's writing is is quirky and eccentric and this is probably a line that a lot of people could do well but I think there's few people who could pull off the line um, you're the first of the official death squads to who have been formally introduced how yes. do you do <laughs> quite so well as Ralph Fiennes does it <laughs> it is a film that as, again, with all of Anderson's work, a very distinctive visual style. Yeah. It's probably the most artificial looking, particularly in terms of colour. Yeah. And it's why, perhaps visually, I don't like this quite as much as the other ones. His sense of colour is very strong, as we've mentioned multiple times through this episode now. But it's just because it feels a bit more artificial in this film than in other films. I, I don't like it as much which is not to say I don't like it mm. but otherwise yes it's great I mean I can even forgive the really bizarre ethnicity change for F. Murray Abraham's character who's you know quite clearly Caucasian as F. Murray Abraham because you know well European Jewish um, heritage <laughs> clearly European in that case and then Zero who's North African okay but yeah. <laughs> uh, I like that slide because the film's so entertaining it really doesn't matter in this the West Anderson world doesn't quite exist within reality anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's odd. I mean, it's one another Anderson film. It's like is he trying to say something? I'm not quite sure because the the zigzag unit of this um, Eastern European country that Ed Norton's the police chief of. Yeah, quite clearly that's meant to look like the SS logo. Yeah, but it's. It's pre-SS, and the uniforms are much more like World War One. This is set between World War One, World War Two, um, bit more Austro-Hungarian than um, German, in fact. So, I mean, I don't know if he's trying to say something or not there because none of it quite matches up. Yeah, um, and it doesn't really have the chops to do that sort of a thing. Yeah, um, <laughs> even if it was trying to say something, I don't think it would be anything more complicated than Nazis were bad. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> That sits a little oddly with me, but otherwise it, it's so entertaining. The kid playing Zero is great. And as I mentioned earlier with the Wild Tenements, this is, well, generally, I think you're with me with this, Scott, that generally don't care for narration in film. Yeah. As a general rule, there are exceptions, of course. This is one of them because the structure is a storyteller telling a story about having told a story. Yeah, there's in fact two <laughs> levels because you've got Tom Wilkinson and then Jude Law. Yeah, um, 
but it, because the way this film is set out like that, it works. Whereas in the Royal Tenenbaums, I don't know what Alec Baldwin's purpose was there. Yeah, it didn't add anything. In this, it works actually, um, and because it goes so hard on the conceit too of basically. <laughs> adding all of the he said bits as well not just like this mm-hmm. person speaks it's like I, and he said to me uh, and I spoke to him about then dialogue from another guy he said at the end you know so yeah. it really kind of it goes full in on that uh, so it works better I think because it really commits to it mm-hmm. Harvey Keitel as a kind of almost <laughs> yeah. Russian mafia looking prison boss guy <laughs> that was strange but okay <laughs> It's just, yeah, it's hard to say anything more than I've not said about all those other films too, though. It, it's sweet and charming and funny and odd and absurd and surrealist and quirky and all of those things, but uh, they work so well. It's just a thoroughly entertaining film. Yes, absolutely. Okay, um, hold on. Give me a second while I try to work in the one quote from Isle of Dogs I picked out. <laughs> I'm determined to do it, damn it, but this one in particular I'm struggling to fit in, so maybe I'll just say it. <laughs> You think we booked this flight through a travel agent? We were fighting for our lives in a high-velocity trash processor while you were getting scrubbed and brushed. <laughs> and I'm fine to leave that in like that, just because I love his dialogue. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, now, now we come to the bit which I simply can't hide, is that so convinced was I that I had already written notes for Isle of Dogs, I put this off to the last minute till right at the point when Scott and I stopped started t- talking before recording this I realised I didn't actually have notes of Isle of Dogs <laughs> <laughs> but having talked about it in two previous podcasts in the last year or so um, I'm hoping that it's fresh enough in your minds this is a story of um, a sort of alternate reality Japan where an evil syndicate has infiltrated the government and this syndicate loves cats and hates dogs and wants to make dogs seem like some sort of sub-race. Again, we're possibly getting into Nazi territory here uh, and suggesting that Wes Anderson could be trying to say something but then again, maybe it's just about talking dogs, (laughs) which is largely what I'm going with. Uh, The dogs are all um, infected maliciously with a disease and then they're saying, oh, look, they've all got a disease now. We must quarantine them. Uh, they're quarantined to the Isle of Dogs in, uh, I think the city's called Megasaki. Yes, that's right. Isn't it? And then there is a plan by the evil cat-loving contingent that now runs the government to kill all dogs. Um, into this uh, dangerous setting of an island of feral dogs is thrown a small little pilot a small boy who's searching for his his former dog companion and guard spots uh and then well he finds spots that's how these things tend to go there's no mystery in the story here Uh, (laughs) what it is though is just again and this is what we've seen a lot but well because we feel it it's beautiful funny quirky thoroughly charming Really good voice acting here. Brian Cranston in particular as Chief. Regular contributors too, like Bill Murray and Ed Norton. And it's just... It's just a beautifully animated, funny, touching, wonderful film. 
Mm-hmm. I, I don't know sure what more I can say to it. They haven't already said about everything else anyway. So the fact I my notes don't in fact exist perhaps <laughs> doesn't matter. I would have just been repeating myself anyway. It's um, animation like this. I'm good to see it again. Just feels like it's the the perfect medium for Wes Anderson style. Mm-hmm. And while I no longer think that this is the most Wes Anderson-y Wes Anderson film, I do believe that is the life aquatic. It's pretty close to that. Uh, it has the most Wes Anderson traits, and I generally consider all of those traits a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I love this film. Yeah, I really love it too. It was a, we spoke about it in our best films of last year podcast for a reason. Um, actually, I think on reflection, it's one of the least Wes Andersony films. I mean, visually, obviously, it is, but I mean, if you look at the actual narrative, I mean, there is one for a change. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, this, this is an actual story that you could arc out, and <laughs> yeah, with a beginning, a middle, and the end, and everything. <laughs> yes, there is conflict and resolution and all that stuff. Um, in that regard, it's a bit more conventional than, than many of his other works, even if the story is about um, something that's undeniably Andersony. Uh, yeah, the, the, I, I don't think it's worth belabouring the point other than to say that it's really, really enjoyable. It looks absolutely gorgeous. The, the animation stuff's great. I think if, if Wes Anderson just decided to do this kind of uh, animation for the rest of his career as well, I'd be equally as happy as if he was making stuff like The Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, a terrific-looking film and so many just little nice touches. Uh, lots of great background work, as you've kind of mentioned in the past. There are lots of things going on in the background to reward re-watching yes and uh, a really interesting setting as well um, a nice little bit of I suppose this would be, a, be science fiction given what's going on to it um, yeah it's really really great film um, I, I don't know if it has the same broad appeal for children as something like you can imagine Fantastic Mr Fox does uh, I imagine it would because it looks brilliant um, and it's frequently funny enough just visually to to warrant it and it's just visually interesting I, I would assume that it's uh, as pleasing for kids as it is for adults uh, can't really back that up with any evidence but that's my reckon so um, yeah I, at least in terms of the adults among us I can say that I certainly enjoy it uh, it's upper echelon Anderson stuff for me and uh, yeah highly recommended if you didn't see this uh, on its release last year then definitely catch up with it as soon as you can now it is very good indeed so that's it that brings us bang up to date it's um, by our dogs was only 2018 and uh, in the middle of the year I think too so it's mm-hmm. it's very recent now I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong but I suspect we both share the same least favourite and that's the Darjeeling Limited Scott yes yeah yeah, yeah. Do you have a favourite Wes Anderson? And if so, why? I suspect I know which one it is. Uh, but confirm to me, please, if it is indeed the um, best hotel. It is. Um, to a degree, uh, I, I would treat Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr Fox as separate things. Um, mm-hmm. Just purely because they're so so different um, in style. But I'm not sure I would really want to pick between... Uh, Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs, Fantastic Mr. Fox, or, to be honest, Life Aquatic either. Um, Picking, uh, you you could slide cigarette papers between each of those films. If you really pushed me to it, I'd probably say Grand Budapest Hotel, but, I mean, they're four superb films, and I wouldn't want to be without any of them. So, 
So that's my favourite film, four of them, because I like cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking about this, and I'm not saying I suspect, although I can't, it's the most recent, so it's it may change slightly as it settles into my mind a bit, but I suspect that my favourite is actually Isle of Dogs. Mm-hmm. It's the one I, I simply enjoyed the most. I mean, I enjoyed a lot of them. Yeah. Um, so I enjoyed Isle of Dogs the most, and it's... I just love the animation style. Yeah, I could certainly get behind that argument. Yes. Yeah. If it's not that... Uh, now, I don't think it's because it's the first Wes Anderson film I ever saw, because it's been such a long time mm. since I last saw it, so I don't think that would have the same impact. But I can suspect my favourite may be Rushmore. Okay, yeah. Now, it may be because it's my first... But just, um, let's say, it's a long, long time since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. But I just, I don't think there was a moment of that film I didn't like. I mean, it's slightly uncomfortable about some of the moments we talked about with the kind of creepy behaviour towards Olivia Williams. Yeah. Um, though the character's written to give as good as she gets in many ways, so yeah. that perhaps um, helps that. But um, it's just, I don't I, I think I laughed at that film more than any of these others. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe... Maybe that's enough. Uh, yeah. I mean, films don't have to be humorous, and there, but there are still plenty of West Ham's films that have a lot of humour. I just think that perhaps I found Rushmore the most rewarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, again, I could pick four quite easily and, yeah. you know, and, and <laughs> argue any given day of the week which of those I preferred. So... Uh, and once again, the pleasing thing is, uh, because it's so rare, there's not a film of these we don't like. Yes. There's some we like less than others, sure, but there aren't any we don't like. There's none that we think are bad films. So, yeah, that's lovely. Now, we have a, a list of potential topics to cover as long as not just my arm, but Scott's arm as well, and Craig's, and probably everybody listening's arm added onto it. it it's a hell of a list. Wes Anderson this time was my suggestion and largely because we didn't have a lot of time left before the end of the month to get this done and we were very much stuck for inspiration I thought, you know what, Wes Anderson we've been thinking about that for a while, we like, we like him we'll do that, okay um, turns out that that was actually quite good because I'm, I had a chance to go back and rewatch a lot of these and also fill in the the gap that I had Yeah. Um, and I found the reviewing of it incredibly rewarding Yes, it's certainly been nice to watch a to, to have a menu stretched in front of you that you know for the most part you're going to enjoy quite a lot <laughs> it's, uh, it, it can make a change and uh, yeah it was uh, a very enjoyable week catching up with all these again and uh, uh, yeah as I mentioned also filling in that gap too but yeah really great films and it's been a, a pleasure to watch them again um, so in case somehow you've gotten this far in this episode without noticing we really like Wes Anderson and we quite highly recommend them. Yes. I mean, not to the point we're going to come around your house and force you to watch them, but... No, we have contractors for that. Yes, not entirely far off of it, though. Uh, but yes, so, we recommend Wes Anderson. If you are somehow yet to sample his his delights, then we urge you to do so. Probably start with Rushmore, as we talked about earlier on in the episode. Uh probably don't start with Life Aquatic just because it's, I think you may need to work yourself up to that level of Wes Anderson's mm. uh, 
but otherwise, please watch them. We hope you enjoy them. That's why we're we're trying to be so effusive uh, because we like them a lot. And we like to share that enthusiasm with other people. If you do watch them, please let us know. Let us know what you think. Even if you don't like them, we're not going to be offended. Well, we are, but we'll mm-hmm. let on them. But we'll make sure um, you're killed quietly and uh, painlessly. <laughs> but yeah, please let us know if you do check them out. Uh, we'd like to hear what you think. Uh, you can contact us through the usual channels: email podcast at fudsonfilm.com, uh, Twitter at fudsonfilm.com, Facebook facebook.com/slash fudsonfilm. Although only Scott will see that one because, well, I, I haven't really given up on Facebook because Facebook <laughs> are clearly evil. Um, I don't want anything more to do with them anymore, yeah. and Craig never did. So, um, <laughs> not sure that Twitter uh, Twitter probably is less evil largely because Twitter's incompetent. Uh, but it's a more straightforward way to contact us. That or email. Actually, one thing uh, just before we go, um, I didn't notice on iTunes someone left a. Uh, so I left a review for us for first in a while. So I'd like to thank oh, that's uh, nice of them. listener in Tokyo, uh, which I assume is both a name and a description of where they're living, uh, for a five star review, uh, which uh, mentioned some very kind words about our Takeshi Kitano episode from back in the day. So that's very much appreciated. Um, if you would like to leave a review, I would encourage that kind of behaviour. Although, if I'm honest, uh, what would help us uh, get to more people more than anything else is if you know anyone else who listens to podcasts, please recommend us to them if you think we're worthy of recommendation that is don't feel forced to but yeah word of mouth is really the only way to grow a podcast like this without spending huge budgets and advertising that unfortunately they don't have so yeah that, that would be nice if you want to do us a favour you could do that uh, but I won't hold it against you if you don't I might but I'm less forgiving than Scott yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. but uh, that's it for this episode we will be back with the with well a compare and contrast on something uh, in 10 days but in, until then, goodbye, I guess. That, that's largely how you finish things, right? Yes. <laughs> Ta-da! Ta-da!